Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 35. In the last episode, we brought our coverage through the final moments of Cam before the Allied counterattack broke upon the dreams of Kim Il-sung. It was a bitter blow for Kim's ambitions, which had so manifestly changed and failed after several months' worth of struggle. For others, though, it was the culmination of a great deal of policy planning, and the success of the venture was critical 
to other such ventures in the future. At the top of the operation was of course General Douglas MacArthur, whose sheer belief in the naval landings at Inchon had done much, as we saw before, to bring them forward into motion. Despite many trends working against him, including the fact that the landing was utterly predictable, MacArthur surged forward, determined to break out of the limits of attrition and defence, and to strike against the enemy in such a way that would change the war, and, of course, earn him some future plaudits back home. Let's see how you get on then, as I take you to that weighted morning when one of the largest Allied landing operations in living memory was taking place. The date is the 15th of September 1950, but our perspective is given by a figure whose very presence on that landing craft may well surprise you. Let's check it out. The song of the week this week is brought to you by... Well, it's brought to you by two things. The first thing it's brought to you by is the Sound Education Podcast Conference, which is taking place in Harvard University on the 2nd to 3rd of November 2018. And it will be attended by some of the brightest minds in podcasting. And me! See what I did there? It's going to be a great time. People that you've almost certainly heard of, if you like history podcasting, will be in attendance, including Mr. History of English, Kevin Stroud... And Mr. Hardcore History, Dan Carlin, who will actually be giving a keynote address at this conference, which I'm really looking forward to hearing. Hopefully I'll even meet him. Maybe I'll take a selfie and talk to him about, hey, it's interesting how we happen to both release series on the First World War at the same time. And hey, do you think you might ever be a guest on When Diplomacy Fails? That'd be nice. I'll do my best to try and record the talk that I give or the panel that I'm on or something like that. I'm sure there'll be ways and means of doing that. But yes... If you are interested in meeting me, if you're from the New England area or you like to drive, then I will be in America from the 27th of October till the 4th of November. So maybe stop by somewhere and say hi. Maybe we could get pizza or beer or several beers and mini pizzas. I look forward to it either way. And yes, trips like these are happening because you guys are being such great history friends and really well, getting the word out there to the point that I'm well known enough that I'm invited to these things, and that is fantastic. You're spreading the word, which is by far and away the best way to support this podcast. I should add, if any donations are received from now until November, they will be going straight towards the fund to get me to Boston. It's still going to happen either way, don't you worry. It's not contingent on me going there, so if I don't get any donations at all, that's fine. But if you've never given any money to this podcast before and you have no intention of doing so, that is grand. But should you think to yourself, hey, I might just throw a fiver his way, I just wanted you to know that that money will be going to the fund that will get me to Harvard. On a side note, my church is throwing a bake sale for me in order to fund me to go there, so that's pretty nice and I'll make sure to not eat all the produce. So yeah, everyone's coming together to make sure that Zach can bring When Diplomacy Fails to Harvard, which is great news all in all, and I cannot wait to go there. I was going to mention 1956, but I've probably talked enough already about everything. So yes, patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails, support us on Patreon for a fiver a month and you will have access to 1956, the second part of which, the Suez Crisis, is starting next week on the 7th of September, I think it is where you'll have two episodes absolutely free and an introduction episode to let you know what's what. So yes, check them out when they come. Alrighty guys, without any further ado, the song of the week this week is Benny Bell. Once again, he's returning, 
This song is called Everybody Loves My Fanny. Yes, that is what the song is called. It's a double entendre, just the same as Shaving Cream. And I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. So, here it is. Enjoy it, and we will be back with episode 35 of the Korean Everyone is out to get my fanny. Everybody wants to see my fanny. Everybody likes to hold my fanny. But she loves no one but me. Everybody wants to seize my fanny. Everybody likes to squeeze my fanny. They do everything to please my fanny. Still, she loves no one but me. Oh, don't touch my fanny. Please don't ever try. My little fanny is reserved for just one guy. That's why I never let another love light blind me. Everywhere I go, you'll always find me with my little fanny right behind me. Cause she's so in love with me. Tried to hang around beside my fanny Maybe I should go and hide my fanny Or she'll find somebody new I've seen lots of fannies in my time And frequently their cheeks were close to mine But never have I held one so divine Like the fanny that belongs to me We will be married Someday next June And when we go away to spend our honeymoon I know that everyone is gonna miss my fanny No one ever could resist my fanny But they wouldn't dare to kiss my fanny Cause she's so in love with me Our assault was to be made on Red Beach, remarked Marguerite Higgins, an accomplished journalist who somehow managed to talk her way onto some of the landing craft of the Navy. Although immediately escorted to a hospital ship after being told that there weren't any facilities for women, Higgins quickly regained her position to provide some useful observations on what went down early that morning on the 15th of September 1950. Where Red Beach was concerned, Higgins clarified that it wasn't actually a beach at all, but a rough seawall of big boulders. And she continued, At the moment of the first landing, the wall would tower 12 feet above the waterline. Engineers had improvised wooden ladders with big steel hooks on top to enable the first wave of troops to scramble over the wall. Aerial photographs showed deep trenches dug on the island side of the wall. If the enemy guard was still on the wall when we struck, it would be murder. The channel approaching in John Harbour was so narrow that the transports would have to anchor at least nine miles away from the assault beaches. Space in the harbour was reserved for warships. Higgins wasn't alone in her palpable horror at the dangers of the operation. MacArthur had traversed the objections not merely of his subordinates, but also of the Joint Chiefs back in Washington, and even Truman's own scepticism in the previous month, but he had since given it. In spite of his victory. Lingering doubts would always remain in the minds of these figures, and despite what MacArthur told himself, 
As a career soldier, he would have known that all plans, however watertight, posed grave dangers. Yet this invasion fleet of 260 vessels, with its 60 armoured warships, was a formidable sight. If the North Korean People's Army was not prepared, then success would surely be in MacArthur's grasp, along with all the benefits to a soldier's career, that a triumphant operation of this magnitude would accrue. If, on the other hand, the North was ready and waiting, then the murder Higgins anticipated would be MacArthur's in spades. The first target was not Inchon, but a small inlet called Womley Island, since this little island was perched in a strategically vital position if the approaches to the actual landing were to be secured. Higgins recalled how the briefing had hammered home the importance of a timely operation. The tide would be at the right height for only 48 hours. We would strike at 5.30, half an hour before dead high tide. The importance of the tides was now more apparent than ever. It was one thing to pour over a map and examine the pattern of tides, quite another to see the waves lapping it in Sean far in the distance, to smell that sea salt smell familiar to anyone who had ever lived near the coast, and to hope that all calculations had been accurate or else the men would be stuck fast in the mud of the difficult harbour. Assault waves, consisting of six landing craft lined up abreast, would hit the beach at two-minute intervals, wrote Higgins. This part of the operation had to be completed within an hour in order to permit the approach of the larger landing ship tanks, LSTs, which would supply us with all our heavy equipment, the LSTs, would hit the beach at high tide and then, as the waters ebbed away, be stranded helplessly on the mudflats. After 8 o'clock, sea approaches to the assaulting marines would be cut off until the next high tide. We imagine Higgins, armed with an unwieldy typewriter while the marines held the weapons, preparing herself to land in the thick of the action. By the time Higgins embarked, the initial test would have been endured, and Higgins moved with the fifth wave of landing marines at Red Beach that morning. Still, though, grave dangers remained. After some nauseous moments of waiting, the shout finally came. Wave number five! Higgins, along with several marines, made their way along the deck to the side of the boat. Our wave commander yelled at us to be careful climbing down the cargo nets into our craft, Higgins remembered, adding that. The cargo nets were made of huge, tough rope. The trick was to hang on to the big knots with all your strength while you groped with your feet for the swaying rungs below. I dropped last into the boat, which was now packed with 38 heavily laden marines, ponchos on their backs and rifles on their shoulders. As we shoved away from the transport, sheets of spray were flung back upon us by the wind. As long as she lived, Higgins, the blonde, attractive and utterly determined journalist born in Hong Kong, never forgot the experiences of that morning. Having worked for the New York Times as a war correspondent, Higgins had been a pioneer, reporting on some final events of the Second World War, such as the liberation of Dachau, the Nuremberg trials and then the Berlin blockade. Higgins had been in Tokyo when the Korean War had broken out, and just as before, she begged her superiors to allow her to remain on site and report home to them. Her service was actually recognised when in 2010 she was posthumously awarded the South Korean Order of Diplomatic Service Merit, one of the highest honours that Seoul could award to a civilian, owing to Higgins's previous work on behalf of South Korean sovereignty. Her son and grandson were there to collect that honour.
Higgins' place in the Korean War was much like a great deal of those men and women who took part in it. For every individual who had volunteered after having missed the chance to go to war five years before, there was a veteran who had been conscripted, in Britain's case, or a career soldier who had been pointed towards the new destination, or a delegation sending its armed forces abroad for the first time in living memory. Every soldier and every face on Higgins' boat had a story to tell, but all figures, even that of MacArthur, paled in size and significance to the overarching political narrative then ongoing. While the war was taking place on the beach of Korea, the more important conflict was being waged behind closed doors, the war for permission, for political credit or for the fulfilment of policy. MacArthur, even if he would never have admitted it, was merely a cog in the wheel. Operation Chromite was the name lovingly given by MacArthur to the Incheon Landings operation, but reporters writing home referred to it scathingly as Operation Common Knowledge, thanks to the status of the landings as Allied Command's worst-kept secret in Korea. Incredibly, such was the extent of the overextension of the North Korean supply lines that Kim's forces hadn't had the chance to mine the approaches to the harbour, nor had significant military power been appointed to defend the town and its harbour in the first place. The vast majority of Kim's army, those able-bodied men that still remained, were locked into the weary assault on the Pusan perimeter. Once they had landed, though, it was Kim Il-sung's turn to panic. After so many uninspiring performances, the American-dominated UN army distinguished itself at Incheon, and especially during General Walker's surprisingly difficult breakout operation from the Pusan perimeter. During the course of this latter operation, Walker's men attempted to battle their way up the peninsula from the south, while MacArthur's forces held Incheon in the middle. Together, both forces planned to surround and cut off the North's best fighting men, and it was to escape this anticipated pincer movement that Kim Il-sung's forces sped northwards, and while some would in the end manage to escape through some ingenious use of the terrain, most of the North Korean People's Army had its fate sealed by MacArthur's successful strike. Within days of the operation, both MacArthur and General Walker further down south were already counting the enemy as beaten. I want you to have a listen to this extract from a radio program from 1951, which basically relived the events of the Incheon landing. Have a listen to it, and have a listen out also for MacArthur's voice, which we will be hearing a great deal more of in later episodes. September 20th, 1950. The 60-nation General Assembly is in session in New York. And while that session takes place, electrifying news comes from overseas... Here's a report direct from the flagship of the United Nations invasion fleet off Incheon. American Marines have stormed ashore onto two beaches of the port city and within a few hours advanced two miles inland. General MacArthur himself is directing the landing. When we move off this ship, we'll depart the red ladders. They're on the promenade deck. That's the deck below this, port and starboard side. Again, the Unified Command reports, Military action has broken backbone of invading armies. Capital of Korean Republic, Seoul, is liberated. The 
people of Seoul welcome U.N. troops. Transportation facilities are quickly restored as forces move up north. One night, Meredith of U.N. Radio reports from Seoul. Here in Korea, I heard the sound of a railway whistle echoing among the barren hills that surround the capital city of Seoul. We heard a whistle way in the distance, and we learned later they'd got the trains running up to the Han River a few miles away. Blue and white flags make their appearance in Seoul, and badly needed relief supplies arrive. UN units push on past the enemy capital, Pyongyang, towards the Yalu. Ten days after Incheon, Seoul fell to the Allies. Records of the communications between MacArthur and the Joint Chiefs would show that the latter were somewhat hesitant about restoring Syngman Rhee to his old position in the South Korean capital, largely because, to many of them, they imagined the de facto despot lording over not only South Korea, but the entire peninsula. To MacArthur, though, it only made sense to restore Rhee, since it had been laid down in the UN resolutions of the 25th and 27th of June to furnish such assistance to the government of South Korea as may be necessary. This, of course, involves no re-establishment of government, nor a change in government, but merely a restoration of the existing government to its constitutional seat, MacArthur had said. Without waiting for a response, General Walker and several other figures were brought to Seoul in late September to receive the Distinguished Service Cross, as well as join in the festivities. Like the Roman emperors of old, MacArthur's primary purpose in bringing his subordinates together, in bringing Re back and in arranging a large-scale ceremony to mark the occasion, was to celebrate a triumph. After reciting the Lord's Prayer alongside the audience, MacArthur then addressed Rhee. Mr. President, he said, my officers and I will now assume our military duties and leave you and your government to the discharge of civil responsibilities. To Syngman Rhee, the whole thing had been an emotional roller coaster, and this latest act of drama all seemed too much. We admire you, the South Korean president gushed with tears running down his cheeks. We love you as the saviour of our race. In case it wasn't obvious yet, the already ballooning ego of MacArthur was to receive a further swelling from this experience. As the historian David Haberstam noted, He had been righted in Sean, and those that had doubted him had been wrong. His supporters now argued when doubters subsequently grew nervous as he pushed his troops ever closer to the Yalu River. He had rolled the dice once against the great odds, and it made it harder to stop him as he pushed forward towards an even greater goal. As Omar Bradley himself put it, The swiftness and magnitude of the victory at Inchon were mind-boggling. We had been on the point of despair, bracing for a Dunkirk at Pusan and or a disaster at Inchon. A mere two weeks later, the North Korean army had been routed. All South Korea had been regained. MacArthur was deservedly canonized as a military genius. Inchon was his boldest and most dazzling victory. In hindsight... The Joint Chiefs of Staff seemed like a bunch of nervous Nellies to have doubted it all. But how did the achievements of MacArthur gel with the wider policy aims of the Truman administration? MacArthur would be relieved of his command in April 1951, not because he crossed the 38th parallel, but because his insubordination would have led to a massive escalation of the conflict with the Chinese that Washington didn't want. MacArthur also unnerved the UN forces, 
especially the British, while MacArthur himself never seemed to have grasped the concept of limited war, which was at this stage entering the lexicon of military debate. It was this concept that enabled Washington to justify its undeclared war against Chinese volunteer units, when a generation before, such a cynical flouting of the rules of war would surely have resulted, as MacArthur claimed, in a full-scale war against Beijing. A full-scale war with the People's Republic of China was not what the president or his circle wanted. They wanted to escalate, but also to control the extent of the conflict with the Chinese, so that it could be used for their own ends. MacArthur proved both a blessing to the policy aims of the Truman administration, and a convenient measuring stick for its leaders, as far as they may have been willing to go in Korea. War with China, for most, was a step too far. Washington had put forward several memos calling for the unification of the peninsula. This was hardly possible without first crossing the 38th, though it was made clear by the Defense Department that even while UN resolutions in late June did not specifically limit the operations of the UN ground forces, in one particular case, Washington would adopt a different approach. In addition to NSC 81, that vague, compromise-filled document designed to please America's allies and perfect for interpreting as one wished, there was another policy report, this one called NSC 76. NSC 76 stipulated what would happen if the Soviet Union became involved in Korea after the United Nations crossed the 38th parallel. Under those circumstances, there would be no limited war but a world war. This, in turn, would require the United States to funnel resources to more important fronts like Europe and the Middle East, thereby ending much of their Korean commitments. The stakes were evidently high, but what happened if the Chinese got involved? Well, China's entry was covered in yet another policy report, because why not? And this one was called NSC 73. NSC 73 was a bit different, because, according to it, Washington would continue operations in Korea if the Chinese entered the conflict, so long as this was possible. And so long as a war between Washington and Beijing was not the end result of this policy. However, NSC 73 wasn't widely disseminated, and it was viewed only as a theoretical report not worth communicating to the allies of the United States. Further scepticism surrounded the other policy report, NSC 76. NSC 76, so remember the report which imagined what would happen if Moscow intervened militarily in Korea, was not thought likely to come to pass. The Defense Department disputed the idea that the Soviets would risk general war to prevent a fully-fledged, rapid and determined UN effort to unite Korea. This was, of course, correct. Stalin had no intentions of intervening on Kim Il-sung's side, having reasoned to his North Korean satellite that he'd already been forced to withdraw his Soviet advisors in case the West found out about Soviet involvement. If Stalin was publicly spooked by becoming involved in a war with the West, then he was privately disinterested in using the Korean War for anything other than an opportunity to alienate Mao Zedong from the West, and the United Nations in the process. Clarifying what the different policy papers were is important, because the historical record of Korea often paints General MacArthur as the insubordinate adventurer who surged across the 38th parallel amidst a gun-ho atmosphere in both the Truman administration and some of Washington's allies. In actual fact, though, the Defense Department was entirely in agreement about the need to press on, and based its conclusions on the fact that, if you'll remember the UN's establishment of the UN Commission on Korea in late 1947, these UN forces were here to fulfill the aims first laid down by that body. 
The critical point is that Washington did not always make these assumptions and ideas clear to its allies, with the exception of NSC 81, that contradictory compromise piece developed in August 1950 and designed to please everyone. One official in the State Department, the Chief of Northeastern Asian Affairs, remarked as early as mid-August 1950 that It is possible that, notwithstanding its considerable military strength located in the Far East, the Soviet Union is not yet ready to risk a general war to prevent a determined and rapid effort by the UN to create a unified Korea. This possibility might be increased if the United Nations should adopt by a large majority a program recommended by the UN Commission on Korea, and if some means can be devised of assuring the Soviet Union that a UN settlement would not be only a US settlement, and that it would not be directed against legitimate Soviet interests. Even without being in the know, so to speak, within the upper echelons of the Truman administration, There were thus several individuals that wished to push the envelope and secure the whole of Korea for the United Nations. This was not the actual desire of Truman or his circle. Instead, they valued the tension and reaction which such a declared policy would provoke from the Chinese. Since it had been discerned that a similar reaction would not come from the Soviets, these concessions, these conclusions could be disseminated through both Department of State and Defense. Even among those who were out of the loop, the anticipation of Soviet inaction was still reassuring for understandable reasons. On the 30th of August, the State Department had concluded that, since it was unlikely that North Korean forces can be entirely disarmed and dissolved south of the 38th, a halt at this point would not make political or military sense unless the risks that it would provoke a clash with the Soviet Union or Communist China were so great as to override all other considerations. These ideas and theories all built towards the creation of NSC 81, that contradictory but mutually acceptable policy report on Korea, which we met in the last episode. NSC 81 had stated on the one hand the importance of securing the UN's acquiescence to whatever went down, and of ensuring that every effort was made to avoid having to carry the war beyond the 38th. Yet on the other hand, NSC 81 remarked on the importance of adopting a kind of wait-and-see approach, and argued that the national interests of the United States had to be considered. NSC-81's contradictions didn't necessarily matter in the weeks leading up to Incheon, because its primary purpose had been to establish unity among the Allies at such a sensitive time. Once Incheon had shattered the North Korean People's Army, though, and MacArthur had pushed the North out of the South, the finer points of that policy report were dragged up, and its contents analysed. What exactly had the Allies agreed to? An actual fact, as the Allies were beginning to discover, NSC-81 had received a few updates since they had last agreed to it in late August. For one, the terms whereby operations could be carried around the Manchurian border were greatly relaxed. In addition, a new draft removed mention of the UN's approval and instead stipulated that the US Joint Chiefs, in other words President Truman, would have the power to dictate to MacArthur rather than the United Nations. I know, guys, that the mention of all these different policy reports can seem confusing, and the discussion of them a tad dull, if we're honest, but if we're to understand how Washington presented its policy and planned alongside its allies, then such things are important to understand. I mean, it's not like the United States could just forge ahead without a plan of action. Well, actually... Perhaps the strangest aspect of NSC 81, even with its new drafts in September, 
was its failure to mention what would happen if the Chinese got involved. Now you'll remember, privately, NSC 73 had stipulated that the US and UN should remain in Korea so long as this was possible, but this message hadn't been widely communicated. NSC 81 was the hymn sheet which most of the UN forces were reading off, and it inexplicably gave no mention of any Chinese intervention. This omission, while it seems incredible to us now, was justified where it was noticed at all by the explanation that the Chinese simply would not intervene. Indeed, everyone from General MacArthur to Syngman Rhee to Truman himself would proclaim themselves convinced that Mao Zedong would not involve himself in Korea, while America's allies convinced themselves that if the peninsula was governed by a neutralised, demilitarised UN commission, then the People's Republic of China would have no reason to fear or object to the ejection of Kim Il-sung's dangerous regime. To clarify what NSC 81 really represented, here's what our man Richard C. Thornton had to say on it. He wrote, NSC 81 was manifestly not a license to go north of the 38th parallel. Rather, it was a series of hedges constructed by the Allies against doing so. But Truman had inserted sufficient qualifications to enable him to authorise military operations in North Korea, should circumstances permit. Nevertheless, the deal with the Allies would drive later intelligence. According to NSC 81, MacArthur would not be authorised to proceed north of the 38th parallel if there was evidence of the entry in some form of Soviet or Chinese forces. Thus, after Inchon, when operations in the north were decided upon, US intelligence would be forced to deny the presence of enemy forces. By omitting mention of any possibility of a Chinese intervention, NSC 81 seemed to indicate that even to consider such involvement was ludicrous. Yet it is instead ludicrous to suppose that the Truman administration themselves never considered it. We know for a fact that they did, because information on once classified reports like NSC 73 shows that Washington had considered the possibility of Mao getting involved. Since such conclusions were certain to spook America's allies though, the final policy paper, NSC 81, neglected to bring such things to light. Neglecting to mention these critically important facts were vital in light of the common aim we keep coming back to, that idea of maintaining unity in the Allied camp. What did such unity look like, though? Inchon, far from merely a military venture, was also a launch pad for diplomatic initiatives. On the day that Inchon was launched, it was announced that the time had come for a permanent peace treaty for Japan. This was a huge development in Japanese-American relations because the country had languished in uncertainty since 1945 as Washington had deliberated. However, clarifying the Japanese situation wouldn't just make America's favourite Asian bastion more secure, it would also have the effect of superseding any commitments made in the Cairo and Potsdam conferences which had stipulated that Taiwan would be returned to China. Aha, so you see now, Washington was actually ingeniously issuing a diplomatic gauntlet to hit Mao where it hurt. By bypassing Beijing, the United States would be well placed to ensure that any ruling on Taiwan would be tied up with the question of Japan, and that in the meantime, the Chinese were excluded from the United Nations, where the situation for Mao was growing much worse. Almost in tandem with the announcement on Japan, the United States moved to anticipate the debating of an important proposal, the admission of the People's Republic of China into the UN General Assembly. On the 18th of September, three days after Inchon, a day before this resolution was due to be debated, 
General MacArthur accused all communists of collaborating against the South Korean regime and of working against the United Nations in the current war effort. America's ambassador to the United Nations, Warren Austin, made a show of producing a Russian-made submachine gun supposedly found in North Korea and passing it around to those present in the UN Security Council. Despite Jacob Malik's furious denials and surprise at his colleague producing a submachine gun, the stunt was effective, nor was it any accident that MacArthur's criticism of world communism arrived when it did. You'll remember that when MacArthur had visited Chiang Kai-shek on Taiwan in early August, the president had sent his advisor to meet with the general. While there, MacArthur had been informed of the looming vote to admit the People's Republic of China into the United Nations, and of the need to obtain real evidence of direct support for the North Koreans, since this might be the reason by which we could prevent the seating of the communists on the moral issue involved. The moral issue indeed, but Mao was not involved in the Korean War at that point, so no evidence could possibly exist of such involvement. MacArthur thus understood his orders to mean, if you can't find evidence, then fabricate some. Having stood back from diplomatically wounding the Chinese in light of the vulnerable Allied strategic position, the Inchon landings represented a point of diplomatic departure for the Americans. When the Indian proposal to admit the People's Republic of China into the UN General Assembly was presented on the 19th of September, Dean Acheson himself urged those present to vote it down and he was successful. Mao's agents were blocked from being allowed into the United Nations by a vote of 33 to 16, and he was therefore prevented from having any kind of impact on that body or any say in its debates. Worse for Mao, suspicion towards the communists translated into sympathy for the Chinese Republican nationalists, who won great influence in subsequent elections to several important committees. The United States thus strengthened its commitments to both Japan and the Republic of China, but in Europe, its zeal was also expressed. On the 15th of September in New York, the foreign ministers of the United States, Britain and France were all meeting. As the battle for Inchon began, Acheson took the opportunity to call for the arming of West Germany and for the use of its forces in NATO. Several narratives portray this event as an example of America's newfound realisation of the need to combat communism with a joint effort, but it can also be interpreted another way. Acheson, for one, was far from ignorant of the fears of the French in particular when it came to German rearmament. Yet, knowing this, he went for the most demanding and dangerous request in the eyes of Paris. Why would he do such a thing? As an experienced negotiator, Acheson was presenting an image of what he claimed to want, while he actually expected to get a far smaller concession. In Diplomacy 101, by pretending as though you desired great things, your act of publicly compromising can make the other side feel satisfied, even when they grant you great concessions, because they feel as though you have given up something for their sakes. This was indeed what happened when, five days later, the French and British both agreed to grant greater powers to the West German government, based in Bonn, to conduct its own affairs, as economic reparations were removed, its police were strengthened, and its diplomatic privileges assured. These steps enabled West Germany to become more integrated in the defensive considerations of the Allies, and mentions of German revanchism from this point began to significantly decrease. It is for these reasons that historians often pinpoint the Korean War as the nail in the coffin of any suggestion that Germany would soon be reunified, having made exceptional use of the force of communism in Korea 
and in Indochina, where the French continued to fight, Washington secured some bonus policy objectives for Europe. You might remember all the way back to when we were talking about the Cold War crash course, we mentioned something called the Brussels Treaty, which was signed in 1948 and had pledged Britain, France and the Low Countries to defend one another against German revanchism, while NATO had recast West German defence as directed against the Soviet Union These arrangements in September 1950, as in the ones we just talked about about West Germany, paved the way towards the European Defence Community, and then the Western Union Defence Organisation, which lumped West Germany and Italy into the original Brussels Treaty Agreement. The big three talks taking place as Incheon developed was therefore a pivotal step towards the development of a common defence strategy against communism in Europe, and it was recognised as such at the time. In addition to Asia then, Washington had simultaneously strengthened its hand in Western Europe. Your move, communists. As MacArthur closed in on the capital of Seoul by the 23rd of September 1950, the American and British governments agreed on a new resolution, calling, in so many words, for the unification of Korea under the United Nations. The resolution was based on the similar UN resolutions of the late 1940s, which had called for transparency and free elections across the peninsula. Although the UN had yet to approve these proposals, with the two most important Western powers now in agreement to take all appropriate steps to ensure conditions of peace and stability, with a guarantee made that elections be held and other constituent acts be taken, it was highly likely that the rest of the delegations would follow their lead. Indeed, the British resolution signified that, for the moment at least, the act of moving troops across the 38th parallel, and perhaps up to the Manchurian border, would no longer be out of the question. Each of these successive diplomatic shocks were meant to demonstrate to Mao that the PRC was being actively excluded from the global structure that the United States was participating in, and that in Washington's mind, in spite of Mao's protests, the PRC would be lumped into the same camp as the Soviets. From this camp it would evidently be impossible for Mao to tread the middle ground and to lean on the Soviets while still trading with the West. Mao received the message loud and clear and on the 24th of September, Zhou Enlai, his foreign minister, communicated that If a majority of UN members continue to support US action in Korea and China, they shall not escape a share of responsibility for lighting up war flames in the East adding an additional charge that the United States had violated Chinese airspace. Lighting up war flames was precisely what Washington was pushing for by late September. With Seoul in their grasp and the wider policy aims in sight, it remained for Mao to fulfil his end of the bargain, whether he realised it or not, and commit his state to the fray. Next time, we will see how Mao arrived at the decision to send his volunteers into Korea, as the war took on a new course once more, and as General MacArthur's ambitions, much like Kim Il-sung's initial war aims in this episode, went up in flames. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, history friends, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 35. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 